Today's programme is brought to you by the number seven. Now, for lots of people, seven is their lucky number, which is curious because it also has a special significance for mathematicians who study luck, or as they like to call it, probability theory. Now, mathematicians who study probability typically hang around betting shops and casinos. I've been followed out of casinos with, you know, if we catch you in here again, we'll break your blankety-blank <laughs> arms and legs. And, you know, if you want to deal with things like that, it's an adventure, but it's just a lot easier to sit in the quiet of your room and prove theorems. Ever since French mathematicians Pierre de Fermat and Blaise Pascal analysed a card game in the 17th century, Mathematicians have been obsessed with establishing the laws of chance. And often, this has proved to be a very lucrative area of research. And one of the modern masters at beating the odds is Thomas Bass, author of the Newtonian Casino, and part of a team who designed a system for winning at roulette in the 1980s. Even in the midst of apparent randomness, there can be order and it's been the desire of mathematicians ever since roulette was invented to find some kind of predictability in the game. The only system which is capable of beating the game is a predictive system. That is, to track the ball and track the spinning wheel and compute their relative positions and velocities and predict physically where the ball is going to land. Thomas Bass used maths and physics to predict where the ball would land. Basically, it's the same as using maths and physics to predict where a spacecraft will land on the moon. The moon is moving in a certain trajectory and the spacecraft is moving at a certain trajectory and you have to relate those two arcs through the heavens and you have to be able to find the equations of motion that allow you to land that spacecraft on the back of the moon. And it's quite comparable in the game of roulette. You have the ball moving, you have the inside of the roulette wheel moving and you have to relate those two trajectories and figure out in advance where the ball is likely to land. Once the roulette ball and wheel are set spinning, there is still time to place a bet. Bass used this time to measure the ball's trajectory and predict where it would land. The calculations were performed by a tiny computer embedded in the heel of his shoe and he fed the data into his computer by wiggling his big toe. All you need to do is clock that ball as it passes a fixed position. You clock it once, you clock it twice. Well, immediately, that gives you the relative position of the ball. So your big toe would, would, would uh, make two taps into the exactly. computer, and exactly. then the computer works out the speed of the ball. Exactly. We spend a lot of time working on eye-toe motor coordination, trying to be the, as precise as possible in making these uh, entries. And then you also clock the uh, numbers as they're spinning by on the inside of the roulette wheel, and you clock those in the same position, and that allows you to relate the motion of the ball to the inside of the roulette wheel. And now it's a question of getting the computer's prediction out. And that was done through a little mechanical thumpers that vibrated in different positions under the soles of our feet and at different velocities. And it was a simple matter of taking the position of the vibration and the velocity of the vibration, and that would break the roulette wheel into a, a series of numbers that we grouped together. And it's in that place on the roulette wheel that the ball was likely to fall. So the computer couldn't give you a perfect answer, but it could give you which segment of the roulette wheel the ball would land, and that's enough to give you a big advantage. This gave us a 40% advantage over the house. So how much money did Bass and his colleagues make? 
I'm in, intentionally vague on, on this subject because if you think of this as a scientist, what you're, what you're primarily interested in is proof of principle. And proof of principle means, did you conduct the experiment in a sufficiently controlled fashion to prove that your system worked? And the answer to that question is yes. Roulette has successfully been beaten. Let's turn to another mathematician who is fascinated by gambling and the laws of chance, namely Professor Percy Diaconis of Stanford University. In fact, Professor Diaconis was interested in gambling before he was interested in maths. And before that, he was interested in magic. I was 14. I left home as the assistant to a great magician named Dave Vernon and went on the road and never went back. And magicians are fascinated by uh, gamblers because gamblers have to be good at what they do, otherwise you don't get to meet them. Because there's a very I, close relationship between mathematics and gambling. In fact, probability begins with gambling, and I wanted to read something about it. I thought I was a pretty smart kid, and I asked somebody, what's the best probability book? And they said, Feller's Introduction to Probability, and I bought a copy, and I couldn't read it. It had calculus in it, and I didn't know calculus. And uh, so I, I went to school to learn to read Feller, is one story I tell myself, and I think there's some truth to it. Anyway, via magic and gambling, Percy Diaconis became a maths professor. And not surprisingly, he became interested in the mathematics of shuffling. In particular, he wondered how many times do we need to shuffle a deck of cards before it becomes random. He was joined in his research by Dave Beyer of Columbia University, who heard Percy talking about a card trick one day. A magician could have a member of the audience shuffle a deck of cards three times, take the top card, put it in the middle, and you know, cut the deck, and the magician could turn around and practically every time find the card that had been moved. And it was a pretty convincing demonstration that uh, shuffling three times doesn't work very well. And I heard this, and I got really interested in it. And you know, I mean, part of working on math, you, you really, at some point, you don't distinguish between research and play. I mean, you're, the best researchers at some level still feel like they're three-year-olds playing. And I just got curious about this. I really didn't think I'd ever talk to anybody except Percy about it. But I started writing a computer program to see how the shuffling actually worked. Now, there are various types of shuffles, such as the overhand or the Hindu shuffle. But Bayer focused on the standard riffle shuffle. Somebody will take a deck, they'll split the deck into two packets that are roughly equal, and then they'll hold the two deck packets with their thumbs against the corners and riffle the cards together. It's like a zipper zipping up with you know, a card from one side, card from the other side, except that it's a little bit clumpy, so sometimes you get two cards from one side, three cards from the other side. Diaconis and Bayer were interested in how well casinos shuffled cards. They suspected that dealers did not shuffle the cards properly because they play with a shoe, which is often a combination of six decks. So the cards need a lot of shuffling. When somebody hand shuffles a shoe of six decks or eight decks, uh, it looks like they're doing a very remarkable shuffling job, but they're really as busy as possible trying to get back to playing because that's how casinos make their money. They, they don't make their money shuffling. They make their money dealing the cards. And if you actually watch closely, there'll be part of the deck that doesn't get shuffled more than a couple times. And if you've memorized that part of the deck, you can imagine that with you know, one chance in four, you know what the next card is and play accordingly. And that's actually a huge edge. It sounds hard, but you know, great players do this sort of thing all the time. 
and there's money in it. So, what would casino dealers need to do to shuffle properly? And the problem is also applicable to bridge players. How many times should a bridge dealer shuffle a deck of cards to make sure that the next game is completely fair? To work out the answer, the two mathematicians began by building a computer model of shuffling. The model is you cut the deck about in half and then you start dropping cards with your thumbs. So you drop, you know, say, and you drop maybe left, left, right, left, left. And the, the chance of dropping with your left hand is proportional to packet size. So if you have A cards in your left hand and B cards in your right hand, the chance of dropping the next card from your left hand is A over A plus B. That prescription completely specifies a mathematical model for shuffling. And then we analyzed that model. There becomes a practical question, which is, well, you analyze that model. Great. Does that have anything to do with the way real people shuffle real cards? And that question is an experimental question. And one of the things I did was get students and myself and lots of other people to shuffle real cards, record the actual pattern of drops that they made, and then see if it agreed with the model. Once they were happy with their model, they could begin to calculate the number of shuffles required for a fair shuffle. Now, most people assume that there wasn't a specific answer. Surely the more you shuffle the deck, the more mixed up it becomes. But in fact, that's not the case. There is a critical number of shuffles when the deck suddenly becomes random. Diaconis makes an analogy between shuffling and mixing. Picture a big glass bowl with black beads on the bottom and white beads on top. And then you have a canoe paddle and you are running through the bowl trying to mix them up. Well, for a while, there are still big streaks of black and white. But all of a sudden, it gets gray and it stays gray. That's the image that happens. That is, is a, the thing we proved, which is actually interesting, is that there's a sharp threshold from structure to randomness. Because you might just think as you shuffle cards more and more, they get more and more mixed. And it's not that way at all. There, there's a striking pattern. The, the, the rising sequences, the cards can be, you know, you can guess many more cards than you should be. And then all of a sudden, after seven shuffles, it just gets random and it stays random. So I start off with an ordered deck, first shuffle, a little bit mixed up, second shuffle, a little bit more, third shuffle, a little bit more still, fourth shuffle, a little bit more, fifth shuffle, a little bit more, sixth shuffle, a little bit more, seventh shuffle, it goes chaotic. That's right. And, and it's, that's a surprising finding, right? That, you know, it's interesting that you could prove that, and it's interesting that it's true. As a result of this research, dealers from casinos to bridge tables have been advised to shuffle the deck seven times rather than just three or four times as they might have done in the past. In fact, in many bridge tournaments, computers are used to shuffle the deck to make sure it's done properly. But some bridge players have reacted badly to this development. When I meet bridge players, they say, oh, God, you're the guy. I hate that. You know, I have to shuffle seven times. And uh, you can look at the data when they did hand shuffling, and you can see that it's not random. The computer came in, and the cards are really well shuffled, there were much wilder swings in the suit distribution and bridge players at first thought the computers weren't working but in fact they'd gotten used to the fact that cards aren't so well shuffled and therefore the suits tend to be too neatly distributed so seven is the magic shuffling number fewer shuffles and the deck is not properly mixed and more shuffles doesn't make much of a difference 
But, as Marcus de Sotoy of Oxford University explains, there is one exception to this rule. If it's in fact Percy Diaconis shuffling the pack of cards and not you or I, then you should be a little bit more suspicious because if he shuffles the pack of cards eight times, then in fact he can arrange that the pack of cards comes back to its original order um, and it's got an incredible amount of structure back in it. And this is actually the, the heart of many card tricks. What Percy Diaconis is able to do is something called the perfect shuffle, where you divide the cards evenly and when you interleave them, you interleave one card at a time from each half of the pack. Now, I've seen Percy Diaconis do this in a lecture in Cambridge, and it is a phenomenal feat. To do this eight times in a row is really what marks out the magician as a true genius. And so, if you're playing bridge with Percy Diaconis, then you should watch out, because he's probably spiking the cards. Now, you might think that it's petty for mathematicians with brains the sizes of planets to fritter away their time scrutinising the subtleties of shuffling. But their research has important things to say about shuffling and mixing of any kind, whether it's mixing ingredients for pharmaceuticals or shuffling genes on a chromosome. Similarly, Thomas Bass's antics at the roulette wheel inspired new research into prediction, in particular predicting the stock market. I think these apparently frivolous pursuits of, uh, of tracking uh, decks of cards or tracking roulette wheels are part of this development of the sciences of prediction. And it's always intriguing then to find that in fact there is some kind of order that lies within them. It's the real power of mathematics to be able to unleash these patterns. I mean, that's what mathematics is about, is trying to find um, hidden patterns in things which look completely random. So it's about finding the right angle to look at things. Something at first sight looks very random, but by analysing the structure of the thing, you can produce patterns which, for example, could win you a lot of money in Vegas. Another five numbers was presented by Simon Singh. The producer was Adrian Washbourne. I hate music. Radio 3 continues the build-up to this year's BBC Singer of the World in Cardiff competition this Friday night with a recital by a soprano from Finland who was a finalist in the 1987 competition, Soila Isakoski. Now a familiar figure in opera houses around the world, she returns to Cardiff and to St. David's Hall in this Friday night's performance on three. Join me, Humphrey Burton, for Soile Isakoski in recital. This Friday night's performance on three, starting at half past seven, over on BBC Radio 3, 90 to 93 FM. Well, there's a choice.